Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, here is a familiar scenario. You wake up, you check your phone, and it now says that it is supposed to snow 12 inches this weekend at your local ski area. You, of course, are stoked. But should you be? Just how accurate are these forecasts that many skiers and snowboarders are checking many times a day around this time of year? And how do these forecasts actually work? Where do they get these numbers from? And what makes one forecast more or less accurate than another? Well, today we're discussing the science of weather forecasting and meteorology with Open Snow founder and meteorologist Joel Gratz. Because when it comes to weather forecasts and figuring out when and where the next big snowstorm will hit, many thousands of skiers and snowboarders rely on open snow, and I do too. So in this conversation, I talk with Joel about the science of meteorology, some of the modern advancements in weather forecasting, the hundreds of weather models that exist and that are in use. We talk about Joel's lifelong love of snow, what led him to start a weather forecasting company, and more. And an important heads up here, everyone listening to this podcast can get a blister-exclusive 60-day free open snow trial that will allow you to check out for yourself the many features that open snow has to offer. And seriously, folks, that is fully no-brainer territory. So if you aren't already a subscriber to Open Snow, as I am, well then take advantage of this exclusive 60-day free Open Snow trial and see what you think. Now, furthermore, as you're going to hear us say at the end of this conversation, Joel is going to be at our upcoming Blister Summit, which is this February 12th through the 16th, so come meet and ski with Joel, as well as our whole team of Blister reviewers and a bunch of pro athletes, and you will also be able to demo a ton of brand new ski equipment from too many brands to name here, but I'll give you a sampling. There will be gear from Forefront, DPS, DinaFit, DinaStar, Elan, Fisher, Folsom, K2, Line, Moment, Peak Skis, Renown, Rosignol, Solomon, Wagner, Wonder Alpine, and there's a whole lot more. So we will include a link in the show notes of this episode for the Blister Summit, and you can see a complete list of the brands that will be at the summit, and we're adding more brands each week here. And anyway, you can get all, all of the details for the Blister Summit in the link that we'll have in the show notes, or you can go to blisterreview.com and click on the Blister Summit link that's on the navigation bar of the website. And with that, let's talk about the weather with Open Snow founder and meteorologist Joel Gratz. Here we go. Well, Joel, how are you today and where are you today? Uh, I am doing well. I am excited because we are ending November 
with a decent snowpack across the western United States and a couple of storms coming up. And I know you said, how am I, which often translates into like, how are you doing physically and mentally? But often that all <laughs> stems from how is the weather and how is the snow? Because I'm just uh, obsessed with snow. So uh, from, a, from a weather standpoint, I'm pretty happy to spend a week with family in uh, just outside of Durango, Colorado, uh, where my, my wife's uh, extended family lives. And so we've been down here just playing with kiddos and uh, and I'm getting ready to get back into winter mode and uh, and do some more skiing. And you base out of where during the winter season? Yeah, that's a, that's a funny question. I've heard uh, random chatter in lift lines uh, that when somebody says, oh, I think Joel lives in, you know, whatever Colorado <laughs> town uh, there is. And, and, and it's just kind of funny to, to be quiet and to, to listen. Uh, so I, uh, I live in Boulder. Uh, throughout the winter, I travel quite a bit across the state and chasing snow outside of Colorado too. Uh, but uh, my home base is in Boulder uh, and I spend quite a bit of time there. Gotcha. And so the traveling around during the winter, is that for work or is that for fun? Be honest. Yeah, well, I'm lucky enough to to answer that question as yes. Mm -hmm. So it... Uh, it, it's a little bit for work and a little bit for fun. So, and I would say fun comes first, but but fun is some semblance of work as well. So, I started all of this, and we'll give you the the full story. Maybe we'll get into some of it later. But uh, I started all of this weather forecasting and, and forecasting snow by being wrong a lot. And the the way you figure out that you're wrong. Uh, from a weather forecasting standpoint in big mountains around snow is to be at the place that you're forecasting for and seeing if it tr truly turns into a really good powder day or not. Now, yes, you can look at cams and look at measurements and, and figure out by the numbers if it's good. But the only really good way to understand uh, what's happening is to be out in the mountains to get a feel for it. Is it dumping with big flakes? Is it piddly tiny small flakes due to lack of moisture or anything in between? So I really do like being out there, not just because it's fun and we're trying to ski powder, but it is the best teacher of whether you got a forecast right or your mental model was wrong <laughs> uh, by being uh, out and, and seeing what the conditions are. So it is a fun thing to do with friends and family to chase snow. But uh, it is also, even if I'm outside of Colorado in a place where I don't often forecast for, uh, it's very helpful professionally uh, to learn. Every time you go out, uh, I'm constantly figuring out what did I think was going to happen versus what is happening. And every time I go out, uh, I learn just a little something new, at least a little something, sometimes a lot of something. And backing up for just a sec, we are talking here. It is Friday, November 25th. And you said that we are currently above average across the West in terms of snowfall? Say a bit more or, or correct me where what I may have gotten wrong there. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. So we had uh, some pretty good uh, storms move through the Western United States early in the season, late October and into early November. And they put down uh, quite a healthy blanket of snow. So, and I'm just bringing up the, the latest uh, charting uh, that I have here, but a lot of the areas uh, near and kind of west of Colorado are above average in terms of snowpack. So we're talking about 100 to 200 and some places even 300% of average, uh, generally from Utah, Idaho, Western Wyoming, Montana, uh, California, Nevada, Oregon, even uh, even parts of, of Washington. In fact, California or, uh, Colorado is, is 
basically the lowest snowpack as a percent of average right now, uh, hanging around kind of 80 to 120% of average. So that was just lucky. We got a couple early season storms that had uh, also a lot of water content uh, in them. And, and so we have a pretty good base. It wasn't just, you know, we got 10 inches of fluffy snow. We got 20 or 30 inches, a lot of places of kind of thicker snow. Uh, and then so that sets up a nice base uh, heading into the season, especially now as we get into the lower sun angle time, late November or into early December, if we get a storm kind of late September and early October, which can happen, not all of it, but a lot of that snow can melt because the sun angle is just still pretty high. But at this point, we're only a couple of weeks from the, the winter solstice. So the sun angle is pretty low. And a lot of that snow, even with warmer temperatures, can stick around. We like it cold. We like it snowy. We like it dark early season, I yes. guess. <laughs> Kind what, of, what, what a funny hobby and profession, huh? but that's true. We're strange creatures. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, it, it is always nice to kind of get at this time of year, sort of to hear that like, oh, I don't know, things are kind of setting up nicely and we'll, we'll hope for the best. And uh, I guess that also then leads me into a conversation with you that I've really been looking forward to have, which is to... Just talk a bit more about sort of the history of modern weather forecasting. You know, I think these days, a lot of us, we sort of look at our phones and we tend to trust quite a bit uh, what these phones are saying the temperatures might look like and the rest. And I figured you would be a great person to talk about what have been the important developments been in weather forecasting and maybe even be able to identify certain technologies or certain and or certain dates that were significant in this business? Yeah, well, let me, it's a great question. And and I think a lot of us just take for granted that all of this stuff just works, right? Weather forecasting just works. And sometimes it's more accurate. Sometimes it's less accurate, but for the most part, it just works. And it is a story of uh, the first thing I'll say is say, it's your tax dollars at work. Now that that might feel like an odd <laughs> response for me, uh, and I'm by no means saying that you know any government agency might use all of its dollars perfectly. But let's throw any sort of politics aside at this point. Uh, modern weather forecasting requires two things an investment by citizens across the world and a cooperation of citizens across the world. The investment comes because satellites, radars, supercomputing is expensive. And yes, those things are becoming less expensive as technology matures, but they are very still very expensive. And so generally weather forecasting and collecting weather observations was in the purview of governments. And that means tax dollars. So our tax dollars and tax dollars around the world are what funds modern weather forecasting. So it is an amazing achievement of not just humans, but also of governments and not also just governments working by themselves, but governments cooperating around the world. And th this is just another point that I don't think a lot of us think about all the time is that it doesn't matter how good the satellites might be just over the United States or the radars in the United States or how many weather stations we have in the United States or weather balloons or anything. It matters that we have global cooperation to know what the weather is doing 
at any given time because our weather doesn't just form and stay over the United States, right? The weather in the United States comes from the West and over the Pacific Ocean. And then before that, it's over Asia. And before that, it's over Europe. And so the weather is global. And for us to have even a shred of a chance of forecasting weather, we need observations and information from all over the world. And for the most part, governments are sharing this information across boundaries to enable global weather forecasting. So first and foremost, our tax dollars, government <laughs> uh, workers working with those tax dollars, uh, global cooperation, and then some private sector work and academic sector work on top of all of that is what has led us to having a pretty reliable weather forecasting industry and, and product. So let's just throw that out there. Governments, tax dollars, global cooperation. I know some people might not feel like the earth is headed in the right direction, uh, but at least from where I am, I am constantly amazed every day that this whole thing works. Um, and also it's kind of in everybody's best interest, I guess, unless there, there would be a war, um, that we're all sharing this because another country also couldn't make their own weather forecast if they didn't have some of our data uh, and vice versa. So there's a lot of cooperation there. Now, uh, <laughs> That aside, and I felt like I was a little bit on a soapbox, but I want to be be really clear that no matter what app you have, Open Snow, which is our app, or just this, the default Android or iOS weather app, or the Weather Channel or AccuWeather or anything, it all relies on global cooperation and government data. Now, that's not to say that there that these companies, ours included, isn't trying to do better than just kind of a quote unquote standard forecast uh, that comes out of government data, but. It, without that, none of this exists. So um, thanks everybody for for paying all of our tax dollars because without it, uh, we'd, we'd have even less of a chance of powder days or forecasting hurricanes or, or any of that um, than we do now. So um, in terms of weather forecasting, you hear this talk of weather model, weather model, weather model. What is the European model, the American model? Or what is a weather model? The weather model is simply a fancy computer program, a really, really complicated computer program that takes a supercomputer to run. But it's fundamentally not much different than an app on your phone or a, an app on a computer. And all it does is it takes in current weather data, what is happening right now around the world. It runs that current data through a bunch of math and physics equations and spits out more data as what we think the weather will be doing in one hour, six hours, 12 hours, or many days in advance. So that is a model. It's just a fancy computer program. Uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago in the, in the mid 1900s, there was no fancy <laughs> weather model. Uh, and we were just trying to do the best we could. And I say we, uh, as in the meteorological uh, community of gathering observations. Like it was actually a feat 50 to 100 years ago, just trying to get current weather observations all across the world, even across the country, right? We're using the telegraph and things like that um, to, to figure out what was going on. Because it really didn't matter from a weather forecasting standpoint, if somebody took the temperature in California and then sent it by mail, you know, and it took a week to get back to the weather forecasting bureau in Washington, DC, well, by that time, you know, it's not, it's not very useful. So getting near real time information is, is incredibly important. And then in the mid 1900s, uh, we started to have some early computing. So the early computing 
was able to then pull in this data and run some of the simpler math and physics equations to figure out what the weather might do. But these are you know, pretty complex equations. And theoretically, we could cover the globe with trying to figure out what the weather forecast is. And this and the computing power 50 to 70 years ago just couldn't do that very quickly. And again, is it useful if it takes 12 hours to make a six-hour forecast? Definitely, definitely not, right? So, so there's always a give and take of what, how large of an area are you forecasting for? How far out in time are you forecasting? How detailed are we making these computer models? And so it wasn't really until I'd say, you know, the late 1990s, the last decade or two, and into now the early, the first two decades of the 2000s, where computing has caught up to, um, you know, or at least allowed us the ability uh, to kind of achieve all the things we've wanted to achieve in meteorology, which is taking all of this weather data that we have uh, and then solving all of the really detailed equations in a very detailed way all over the globe to come up with with a forecast. And so uh, a couple things along that journey from, you know, simply using the telegraph to communicate weather observations 100 years ago to using, uh, you know, simple computers 50 years ago to now uh, using you know, supercomputers and, and really you can weather, run a weather model now on a, uh, on a laptop if it's powerful enough. So, uh, a couple of things that have, that have happened. One, uh, satellites. Satellites are a really, really, uh, big deal because what they've allowed us to do is take observations of the earth and of weather, especially in places where people are not. So it's pretty easy to set up, and I say easy, but it's easier to set up a weather station at an airport down the street. It is not so easy to figure out uh, what the weather is doing over, uh, over say, the middle of the Pacific Ocean where there are no people and where there are very, very few ships. Um, so uh, that is – so satellites coming on board in the 70s, 80s, and 90s have allowed us to observe weather over places where people were not. And you might say, well, yeah, I mean, is that really helpful? Well, it is because where is our weather before it gets to the United States? The Pacific Ocean, right? So that's very important. The other thing that a lot of us don't think about, because I would imagine most listeners of this podcast are in uh, the Northern Hemisphere, is that the Southern Hemisphere, for many decades, the accuracy of weather forecasts in the Southern Hemisphere lagged the Northern Hemisphere. And that is because uh, there were fewer, <laughs> there's less land area, uh, more oceans in the Southern Hemisphere, and therefore there are fewer people taking weather observations in the Southern Hemisphere. And with less weather observations, we have less accurate weather forecasts. But then uh, with the launch of more satellites, that gap between more accurate forecasts in the Northern Hemisphere, less accurate forecasts in the Southern Hemisphere, basically closed to near zero right around the year 2000, plus or minus. Um, so satellites are a really big deal. Um, radars, the modern radar network that we just have taken for granted here in the United States was installed in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, that is a really big deal of knowing what is actually falling from the clouds uh, over the majority of the population in the United States and, and now many places around the world. That gets fed into uh, the weather forecasting models as well. So there are just satellites and radars are a really big deal. 
also now computing, 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 because it doesn't matter how many satellites, how many radars, how many ground stations, how many iPhones even <laughs> are out there taking barometric pressure readings if you cannot uh, assimilate is what, what it, it's called. Take all of that data and put it into the model and then run the model and output a forecast. So if you're uh, held back by computing power, all of that data doesn't really help you. But thankfully right now, computing has just come so far so fast uh, and is allowing people to you know, basically create very high resolution forecasts for a fraction of the cost uh, of what it uh, cost a couple of decades ago. So um, that is the, what, 10 minute version of, of modern weather and forecasting. But let's just remember tax dollars and global cooperation is where this all comes from. And so I'm thankful every day that there are enough people, even though the world can be a weird place with some weird people sometimes doing some some not nice things for humanity uh, on the balance. Uh, we're all working together and trying to to understand our planet more and more. I think that's really cool to learn or be reminded of these notions or the different areas where that global cooperation is taking place we've we've kind of the one that kind of comes to mind is in the history of like space exploration those of us who have any grasp of that history know the kind of cooperation and communication that has taken place between countries on that front but i had not really thought at all i'm embarrassed to say uh, about how this pertains to weather and kind of nice to you know be made aware of that and i should be made aware of a lot more of these things just as we think about the state of the world and the news is always about the tensions uh nice to hear about these areas of cooperation yeah well and and just to to jump on that even more i give a bunch of community talks all throughout colorado every year and i talk about the seasonal forecast and some weather technology but i a couple a couple weeks ago, somebody asked me this question kind of about modern weather forecasting and some technology, and we got on this tangent about governments and global cooperation, and the room was kind of just silent and in awe, and not not because I'm, you know, some some amazing narrator of, of weather history, but mostly because people didn't realize this and what happens behind the scenes. And you think there's just some, you know, magic weather machine or supercomputer or whatever it might be in Washington or somewhere else or at Apple's headquarters or Google's or whatever. And uh, or the Weather Channel, you know, cranking out these forecasts uh, with, with little regard for the need of truly global cooperation. So I'm glad we got a, a chance to talk about it, and it's a it's a fun topic uh, just just to understand where this all came from, and, and it's really just uh, you know people all over the world trying to do better and better and better. And and one other thing I'll, I'll mention on from a global perspective. For any of the kind of weather nerds out there or want to be weather nerds, of which there are more than I think people give themselves credit for, I hear a lot of people say, like, if I wasn't, you know, a blah, blah, blah for my profession, I really wanted to be a meteorologist or I was really interested in weather. So um, I love I love talking about this. And one of the things that people ask is, well, what's really the difference between the European model or the American model or the Canadian model? And the Canadian model, uh, with some exceptions – doesn't just forecast for Canada. It's a model that is produced by scientists in Canada, but forecasts all across the globe. And the American model is produced by scientists in America, but forecasts all over the globe. And the European model is a consortium of European country scientists that make the model, but forecasts all over the globe. And there are just regional models that just forecast for the United States or just for Canada or just for Germany. Uh, but 
when we talk about the names of these models, these computer programs, they're generally named for who is making them. And that's often which government uh, agency or, or which government nationality is making them. So is that to say then that if we're really striving for accuracy, it is best to go read all of these different models and depending on the day or the emerging weather, some of these models tend to do better in certain circumstances? Or is it about like, well, we can never really say, oh yeah, the Canadian model always tends to be a bit more accurate if certain characteristics, weather elements are coming into play? Or is it just about let's take seven different models and figure some things out from there? Yeah, it's mostly the latter. In fact, uh, any given model can be more accurate or less accurate in any given storm situation. Now, when we get down to details, uh, you can start to see the differences play out. And there's some local intuition and, and just experience that we have knowing that, well, this model always way over forecast snowfall along the ridges and or, or this one, you know, is lower resolution. So we don't want to use it at this point. But when we just talk about call it kind of a traditional five to seven day forecast. And by the way, at five to seven days, all we're trying to figure out is, is there a storm coming and roughly what track is it taking? And maybe, you know, are we talking a few inches of snow, five to 10, 10 plus, but you know, if anybody says it's going to, you know, with high certainty, it's going to snow an exact number of inches, you know, seven days in advance, uh, you know, that doesn't, we all know kind of that, that, that doesn't work. So what, what we try to, you know, from one model, right? So what we try to do is, pull together all of the models that we can get our hands on and smash them all together. And especially at that kind of five to seven day time period, uh, any model can be more or less accurate. A lot has been made in the last decade that the European model is more accurate because it, it uh, correctly forecast the superstorm Sandy going into New York City. And, and on average, the European model is the most accurate. But we're talking about by a percentage point <laughs> over another the second place model, which is more accurate than a percentage point than a third place model. And that's averaged over, you know, months and years. When you look at any given storm, anything can happen. And I was just reading a thread by a, a meteorological uh, scientist who pointed out that the European model just had a major forecast bust, which is just, you know, parlance for it got it wrong <laughs> uh, for, for a storm that was going to hit uh, the East Coast around Thanksgiving. And I mean, that's fine. All models get storms wrong. But this is just points out to say that I don't always use the euro or always use the Canadian or always use the GFS, which is the American model or the German icon or, or any of these is that it's really useful to smush them all together. Now, if you're looking at, you know, a hundred versions of these models, because by the way, there's not just, you know, five or six or seven global models. Many of them run multiple versions of those models. So you, you really have access to, you know, over a hundred plus forecasts <laughs> from, from any given time period of, of what might happen. And if the majority of them are pointing toward a storm in five or seven days and the minority are not pointing toward a storm, then you have a decent you know, chance of, of having a storm. But that doesn't mean we have high confidence that we know that that storm will drop you know, 8.2 inches on your exact location, right? We're just trying to kind of nail it down to, uh, to 
is there going to be storm five to seven days out or not? And then once we get inside the kind of five-day window and down to three days, that's when we can start thinking about the nuances. And often the models at that point start to coalesce around a general storm track. And then it's more of the details of, well, does a certain model have better resolution? Uh, is the wind direction being picked up better by one model or the temperature or something like that? Um, so it's all across the board, but they don't play model favorites. If you, if you like, if you want to see a model online and it says there's going to be a snowstorm in 11 days, don't get your hopes up because then you'll be just like uh, me when I was growing up outside of Philadelphia and I'd be so excited, so excited, so excited. And then, you know, I wake up in the morning and, and I, there is no worse feeling, uh, at least for a kid that's obsessed with snow, than going to bed thinking that it's going to be dumping snow when you wake up and that school will likely be canceled. And I look out my window and it's just brown grass and you're like, oh, God, what just happened here? And you also have to go to school. That's awful. <laughs> so we're talking about hundreds of different weather models. And you mentioned that given the progress that's been made just in terms of computing power, we are in a much better place today. But in terms of the next developments, the next steps that would lead us to even greater accuracy. I mean, it does kind of seem as just a lay person that computers have gotten ridiculously powerful today. So is it that computing power still like more, we still need more computing power to get more accuracy or will there be, do you think, new developments in technology that would actually be the thing that would lead to greater accuracy? And I guess that means being able to more accurately forecast further out. Am I thinking about this the right way? Yeah, so it, it's a it's a complicated problem to unpack. So so let's uh, we'll take it step by step. More computing power is always better. So we'll absolutely take more. <laughs> you can just do things faster, do more of it, do it at a higher resolution. Uh, so so of course we'll take more. There are things coming. I mean, we're all hearing about the rise of artificial intelligence, and now you can effectively generate generate your own uh, art. You can generate your own essays, <laughs> you know, if you will. And there are some pieces of this technology that in a sense can shortcut some of the weather forecasting so that in some way over the coming years and decades, we might be able to achieve higher accuracy with less compute power, just kind of a more creative way to um, apply that compute power. Uh, but that's still, it's just, that's in its infancy right now. Something else that will help uh, meteorology to be offer even more accurate weather forecasts will be more sensors. So the better, the more data and the more accurate data that we have at the current state of the atmosphere, the better. And you might say like, how, how is that useful? Like, can't you just go outside and know that it's, you know, whatever, 21 degrees or 34 degrees or the wind's 12 miles an hour? Well, yes, you can, but we don't have a weather station covering every square inch of the globe, right? So even though we have satellites and radars and a lot of weather stations, we just need more and more and more data across the globe. And also remember that the atmosphere is three-dimensional. So we don't just care about what's happening at the surface here. We care about what's happening 100 feet above a thousand feet above, thirty thousand feet above. So we are getting data from planes and weather balloons and and satellites and many sensors. But more is better. And so 
uh, as people develop lower cost, lower power sensors uh, and lower cost satellites, all of this will help. Um, from a how far out can we forecast standpoint, we have, and I say we, the meteorological profession has demonstrated skill in the forecast out to about 10 days. That does not mean that we can offer you a down-to-the-inch forecast for your backyard <laughs> at 10 days. I mean, we can offer you a forecast down to your inch or down to your uh, you know backyard in 10 days, but I can't guarantee that's going to be an accurate one. But um, often out to 10 days, at least you can sometimes say it's going to be warmer or colder than average or uh, wetter or drier, things like that. Uh, some scientists a couple years ago ran a study and tried to see what is the theoretical maximum of how far out you could predict kind of day-to-day -day weather, you know, temperatures, is it going to rain, snow, something like that. And they came up with about 15 days. Uh, beyond about 15 days, uh, there was so much chaos in the system that they thought uh, it may not be feasible to predict day-to-day -day weather out past 15 days. So, so keeping score, we currently have the ability to predict some version of day-to-day -day weather at 10 days. Theoretically, we might get out to 15. Uh, now, that said, the ability to forecast weeks and months in the future is there, but generally not from a day-to-day -day weather standpoint. That's more, hey, is the month of December going to be colder or warmer than average? Not which days are going to be snowy, which days are going to be powder days. We just can't do that maybe a month ahead uh, or you know, many months ahead or sometimes even many weeks ahead. Uh, but there is a lot of work going on in that cu couple weeks to couple months forecasting to just try to understand, not just from a skiing standpoint, but from an agriculture standpoint or, or just a general planning perspective, wetter, drier, warmer, colder, um, things like that. So there is progress being made, but unfortunately from a skiing standpoint and like an actionable, actionable advice standpoint, I just cannot, you know, tell you to go ski, uh, Mount Baker on, you know, February 23rd when it's, you know, currently the middle of, uh, November. Uh, that's just, you know, th there is a shred. I don't want to say a shred. There are some people that are using some techniques to be able to try to isolate a recurring pattern in storms. And there is, and, and which can get you out a month or two. Um, and there is some evidence that this works, but I would call it, um, semi-feasible. It doesn't work all the time, but sometimes it works better than you think. Uh, but for the most part, I just, <laughs> we, we take the storms inside of seven to 10 days and, and work them from there and, and chase them from there. And it's really hard to, to plan further in advance than that. Hmm. So you've maybe said already some things related to this next question, but with respect to the state of research in meteorology, are there kind of the primary elements or research areas where it's like, oh, this is really hot right now, or the kind of profession seems most focused on this particular aspect? I guess I shouldn't say about meteorology. I should say about forecasting more specifically. Yeah, I think, uh, and here's a couple things. The, the things that capture our attention, hurricanes, uh, wildfires, tornadoes, always capture a lot of meteorologists' attention. So there's just a lot of research going on uh, into these things as well. Hurricanes and tornadoes are 
predictable. Like we understand generally how they work, but every year we understand just a little bit more and, and hopefully that makes the, the forecast better. Uh, wildfire is becoming a greater threat across the, the Western United States and across the globe, just with, with warmer temperatures that we don't even need to have less or more precipitation, but just with warmer temperatures, you can generally get um, more evaporation, a drier ground, uh, and therefore a higher risk of wildfire. So, so that's an area of research. Uh, computing, high-performance computing and squeezing every less drop of performance out of computing uh, and machine learning and artificial intelligence. These are all uh, big areas of focus as well. You know, I will say candidly that you know, predicting snow in complex terrain, which is what meteorologists call big mountains, <laughs> uh, complex because they're not flat like the, you know, the Great Plains of, of uh, central United States or something. Um, there's just not a ton of forecasting that goes into uh, snow or sorry, research that goes into improving the forecast of snow in big mountains. And that's not to say that meteorologists don't like snow or there is no research going into it. There absolutely is. Uh, but just in terms of societal impact, you know, we're, we're a pretty small group of people uh, across the globe that, that wants to recreate and then go have fun in the mountains. There is a little bit, I mean, there's a, a much more uh, defined reason to, or I would say useful reason to forecast snow, which is water availability in spring when spring, uh, when the snow runs off and, and melts. And so that is a reason to get better at forecasting snow as well. But I just wouldn't say that snow forecasting tracking is the highest <laughs> thing on the list of uh, the global meteorological community, especially when you have things like, uh, you know, tropical cyclones that can impact um, uh, Bangladesh, you know, or India, uh, and, and cause, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to be impacted, you know, versus, you know, trying to get the snow forecast a little bit better <laughs> over the Alps or over the Western United States. But that said, because the weather is global, a small improvement in forecasting of how a storm moves through mountains can wind up impacting the accuracy of a track forecast of a tropical tropical storm. So it all matters. <laughs> uh, I just wouldn't say that that snow forecasting in mountains is, a, is the, the highest on the list of uh, the global research community in meteorology. Yeah, fair enough. And why why we need to be glad there are people like you who are less obsessed with, say, hurricanes and more obsessed with, say, snowstorms. Just, just, just how it rolled. I can't, I can't tell you exactly why, but ever <laughs> since I was four years old and my parents took me skiing, I, I've been obsessed with weather and snow. So let's talk a bit about your background as a skier. So you started skiing around four years old? Yeah. Neither of my parents were skiers. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. Uh, there was a, I think, I think my dad told me there was some sort of coupon in the mail <laughs> of a, you know, low cost, you know, go up to Shawnee mountain and stay in, stay in the lodging and, you know, get one night free or something. Who, who knows what it was, but they just said, all right, that sounds fun. Let's take them up. And, uh, I, for whatever reason I was hooked, it made sense to me. So, uh, I was skiing, I skied from age four to age 18 at Shawnee mountain, which is about 400 vertical feet in the Poconos of Northeastern Pennsylvania. And for a lot of the Western listeners, that might sound like a little bump, but, uh, growing up, it was as much fun as I could have ever dreamed. I skied every weekend. I took lessons and then I was on the, in the race program. I was never a very good racer. So my friends can attest, uh, that whole go fast and take chances thing wasn't exactly for me. Uh, but I, but I, but I learned a lot of good technique and, uh, and, and just being out on the hill and all the drills to get better at skiing, um, whether or not it revolved around racing or not was, was really useful. So I love that. Then I instructed for a couple of years mm. 
at Shawnee, and then I joined the the, the ski team and, and raced at Penn State, where I I, uh, I went to school for meteorology and and met a lot of wonderful people that just love to ski. And so we raced and and we raced on Tussie Mountain, which was 400 vertical hmm. feet. So my, my hills were getting smaller. <laughs> uh, but but again, it was 10 minutes from school. That's all I, that's all we knew. We had the time of our lives. We had so much fun skiing a couple times a week uh, throughout the spring semester of college. And then uh, a bunch of us from the ski team moved out to uh, out West and to Colorado specifically all pursuing different professional paths, either grad school or professional life. And I came out for, uh, a graduate degree at the university of Colorado, focusing on both meteorology and public policy and, uh, and business. Cause I always just was kind of curious about the business side of weather, not just the forecasting side of weather. So it was, uh, it, it was, it wasn't until I got to Colorado and, uh, and actually a year or two before that, when I skied Alpine Meadows with a friend and, and there was a, a foot of snow and in my little, uh, slalom East coast race skis on, you know, that were tiny pencils. Right. And I was skiing a foot of snow at Alpine Meadows. I must've fallen 20 times in 500 vertical feet. I had no idea how to ski, ski powder. And I hadn't fallen that much in, you know, the previous five seasons combined, but I just, once I kind of get the hang of it, I said, Oh my gosh, like this is amazing. And oh my gosh, it combines weather, <laughs> you know, and skiing. Like it's not just, is there going to be corduroy or loose granular or whatever, but now we're chasing this, um, uh, this perishable thing called powder. And I, I, I got hooked. And so I, I moved to Colorado for grad school, but then that's when we started, I tried to try to dial in the powder and, and figure it out for, for myself and my friends. So you're at CU Boulder and First of all, I'm curious when you say you were there to study meteorology, public policy, and business, what was the public policy portion? Was that is that public policy related to either meteorology or business? Yeah, yes, good question. It's related to meteorology. So so my thought coming out of undergrad was I really like weather. I actually I was I was a mediocre forecaster in undergrad, but you know, we were forecasting high temperatures for various cities. Like I, I had very little skin in the game <laughs> for that. It's it, you know, I, I don't know if I'm I'm the best forecaster now, but I really, really, really care about getting it right because I really want to forecast snow versus high temperatures on the East Coast didn't necessarily capture my imagination. But uh, what I came out of from undergrad was okay, I kind of get I get the science of meteorology. I really like it. I love it. In fact, I'm obsessed with it. But what am I going to do with it? I dabbled. I spent a summer interning at a TV station in Philadelphia. Uh, it was fun. I learned some. But I, uh, most importantly, I, I think from uh, from an internship perspective, I learned that I didn't want to do it. That wasn't uh, my passion. I didn't want to be into TV. So I spent another summer doing tornado research in the Great Plains and driving you know those mobile Doppler radar trucks around or driving the chase car of those and taking measurements. And, and I learned that I love being out in whether it's incredible, but I don't want to be a researcher or a professor. And so I'm kind of narrowing down these things of what I don't want to do, uh, trying to figure out what I do want to do. And uh, I was studying under a mentor and advisor at the University of Colorado who was at this intersection of meteorology and public policy of, great, we have all this science. What do we do with it? How do we make decisions about where to put research dollars? Uh, how do we solve these problems? How do we communicate better with the public about things that we know and don't know? So it was more of the application of meteorology and less about the actual forecasting of meteorology. So that's what I studied in grad school and then also some uh, some business. I, went, I got an MBA at the University of Colorado because there was a wonderful dual degree program between environmental studies and 
and the MBA, which allowed me to do both, but at a lower cost and in less time than if I just did each separately. Um, so it was really a gift that I, I wasn't aware of when I moved um, out, but uh, wound up working out very, very well. And I was a research assistant and teaching assistant um, during grad school to, to pay some of the way uh, as well. And what year, what years are you in grad school? Yep, I'm in grad school 2003 to 2006. And so I'm in grad school in Boulder. I'm, I'm doing the I-70 thing, sleeping on friends' couches that I have. Uh, you know, I have friends up in Steamboat or uh, or Summit County or, or over in Vail. And so, you know, just, I mean, really, it, you know, it's grad school slash ski bum life, right? It was like I was going to school, but I had a Tuesday, Thursday schedule. <laughs> so there was a lot of time to uh, to travel around and, and just try to take in the West and the freedom of being in, in Colorado in the West and, and trying to figure out where the snow was and uh, how to ski and, and learn how to ski and learn what backcountry is in big mountains. I mean, I just didn't know any of that stuff uh, growing up on the East Coast. So taking avalanche courses and, and just getting familiar with um, what the culture of skiing is uh, here in Colorado. Hmm. So when did you first start having the idea of like, hmm, I don't know, maybe someday I'll start a weather forecasting company. Well, it's it's. Uh, I, I just met with actually a mentor of mine from the MBA program, who you know from 15 years ago, and he printed out a spreadsheet that he had from a class that I had uh, had sat in on, and the we each had to say, you know, what business, it was an entrepreneurship class. So what business would we want to start? And I, I distinctly remember this. Uh, I had written down a weather magazine. Uh, weather and, magazine, and weather magazine. And I'm, I'm glad I, I went with the online version <laughs> of, of weather. I think that that has treated me a little bit better from a historical standpoint, but, um, uh, you know, but their magazines did quite well until until they, you know, had a harder time uh, going for, for it in uh, at least traditional magazines um, uh, back then in the, in the 90s, but in, in early 2000s. So um, what happened was two things captured my attention. So there was that powder day I had at Alpine Meadows. That kind of said, all right, this is powder thing. That's cool. Then I was skiing with a friend, Penn State ski team friend, and her uncle who had lived in the Vale Valley for 25 years uh, one day. And I had a phenomenal powder day and we got done uh, skiing. And uh, my friend's uncle just looked up at the clouds and you can kind of picture this, right? I, I had looked at my computer models earlier and he just kind of glances up at the clouds, this grizzled, you know, longtime local said, Joel, I should stick around tomorrow. It's going to be another good powder day. And, you know, the clouds were kind of clearing a little bit. And I said, nah, I looked at the models like this is done. I'm, I'm driving home. It's over. And I was driving back home and it just started dumping snow. And I was like, oh man, there is something locally that this guy and other people know that I don't understand. And for what it's worth, the computer models don't understand. So that, that just captured my imagination because uh, back East, I mean, there are some microclimates and some bigger mountains. But there's often we don't have mountains like we do here that create uh, some things that are hard, harder to model. And so that was the first thing. Remember what I said, you know, when we started that being somewhere is really important at understanding, you know, when the forecast is right and when it's wrong. I and mean, I still to this moment, remember driving back over Vail Pass. I remember what the snowflakes look like <laughs> as I was driving through them, thinking that I had made an awful decision to leave and <laughs> tomorrow would be another amazing day. And he figured something out that I did not. Uh, and then about a year after that, 
I had a friend up at Steamboat and uh, she let me know the, it was before the mountain was open for the season in, uh, or maybe just as the mountain opened in, in late November that she skied four feet of snow that fell in about 72 hours. I was like, there's no way, you know, the forecast was for maybe six, eight inches or something like that. And I wasn't there. And I was so mortified that I, I missed <laughs> that much snow that, uh, and that there was this surprise up at Steamboat that, that, that S, that, um, that day at Vail and that day in Steamboat, uh, just set me on this path to say, okay, it's fine if the forecast is wrong. Forecasts are wrong. But how can you make a forecast for six or even 10 inches and you get 48? Right. Like that is just something is happening here. And so my mind was just captured. <laughs> my attention was captured. I became obsessed with this. And as uh, my uncle has told me, I move at the speed of molasses, but at least it's in the right direction. So, so with, with, and, and, you know, that, that might describe open snow, the business too. We don't, we don't go things, we don't go thing after things, you know, fast. We're, we're not, you know, the fastest to market. We don't just jump on things immediately, but we're trying to do the right things at the right pace and do them well. And so that set me, those two incidents, one at Vail, one at, at Steamboat set me down this path of, I'm going to try to figure this out. So I talked to national weather service forecasters. I sat in with C Colorado Avalanche Information Center forecasters. I was just trying to learn uh, what is happening. And, you know, a lot of times they had great insights. And also a lot of times they would just look at me and say, big mountains and it's weather. And this is hard. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, it's like, this is, this is challenging. Um, so that happened for a couple of years and I would go out and make forecasts for myself. Sometimes I'd tell friends, sometimes they'd be right. A lot of the time they'd be wrong. Uh, I'd, you know, go home with my tail between my legs. When I say it's going to be a massive powder day and we drive somewhere and it turns into a day where it snows all day, but the flakes are tiny and it snows maybe a half an inch. And you realize like I did something wrong. Something is happening in this forecast that the models are not capturing and I need to figure it out. So uh, all of those experiences, uh, especially the bad ones, uh, led me to just this moment where I woke up one day, friends were texting me, hey, I don't trust your forecast. You're wrong all the time. But what do you think we should do to ski powder this week? <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, I'm just tired of, of texting all, uh, all these people individually. Uh, I'm going to put it together a little email list and just call it the Colorado Powder Forecast. And uh, that way you can just read one thing and I don't have to message people individually and um, that was the genesis of all of it. Wow. Wow. So talk about open snow today versus what it was like in around, you know, the, the, the early years, 2011, 2012. Yeah. So, so this is an, it's an entrepreneurship story. I'm, I'm thrilled. You know, some people ask, why do you live in Boulder? Right. I mean, Eldora is, is close-ish. It's about 40 minutes away, but you know, and most of the time you're on the wrong side of the divide um, to get a lot of snow and you're fighting traffic and, and all of that. And, and, and yes, I do try to plan ahead and, and go chase before storms and drive all over the place. But um, one of the things that I loved about Boulder and being there is just this entrepreneurship spirit and community and things were really coming up in the late 2000, you know, aughts 2006 and just seeing all these people starting businesses not just weather businesses just any businesses and taking the risk and going for it and so i had started this uh this email list then i turned it into a blog and it was fine you know there were there were people calling me wanting to advertise there were a couple of news stories but there's a big difference between you know this niche community of people liking this thing and make and quitting my job <laughs> and, and, and starting a business uh so 
Uh, I just realized, though, I, I realized kind of two things. One, there was an analog business, analog business, similar business called Surfline uh, that I had looked up to, and they were uh, they forecasted surf conditions, and they're still around. They're doing great. They're an amazing business and an amazing company, and uh, they literally started as a call-in line, like one nine hundred. You would call, you know, to pay some money, and somebody would tell you what the surf is like and what it's going to be. Um, so I looked at them. They were doing something similar to snow forecasting, and figured out how to make a business out of it, uh, getting money from advertising and subscriptions. And then, so that was a good model. And then uh, I also just thought I was in my late twenties. I, I had a steady job, but also uh, I could walk away from it because I had some savings. I didn't have a significant other. I didn't have a pet. I had reasonably low cost housing where I had bought a, a small condo, but I had a roommate that was helping me cover some of that. And so I was just like, man, you know, if there's ever a time in my life that there's a there's a time to walk away from a job and try this, now is the time. And yes, it's scary, but it's less scary than when you get used to more money and you're more senior in your job and you have a family and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, you, you know, I know people that have started companies out of college. I know people that have started companies in their 40s and 50s and 60s and all of it works. But for me, it was just that that groundswell in the late 20s or the, my late 20s when Boulder entrepreneurship scene was coming up. Uh, I was at a place in my life where I could weather a year or two. And you know, my dad said to me, he's like, well, I don't know how you're going to make money, but if you try this, I'm behind you. And if it doesn't work, you know, I'll give you a little bit of cash to get you back on your feet until you find another job. And that was impactful too, right? To know that like the world won't crumble uh, if I try this for a year or two and, um, and it doesn't work. So that was the start of it. Uh, I was writing uh, some, some people in the ski community said, hey, there's this other guy in Tahoe that's writing a, a blog as well about weather. You should check him out. And there's this other guy in, in, in Utah. And so I wound up talking to Evan, wound up talking to Brian. We were doing all the same thing. We, we, we had the idea of pooling, you know, our efforts together. <laughs> so rather than being three kind of semi-obscure blogs, could we make a kind of more nationally oriented uh, website? And this was kind of before apps or just early on in apps uh, that would not just provide kind of written forecasts, but eventually we could provide, you know, the, the forecast that people come to expect is how much snow is going to be here at whatever given mountain. So that was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And now here we are, we have a team of people that forecast across the country and, and we're going to add uh, a Europe forecast uh, this year as well. And then we've, we've implemented a lot of technological changes over the years. And, and most recently, I'm just proud of, we now uh, combine all those weather models I've, I told you about. We now combine all of those, adjust them for elevation and specific lat latitude and longitude, wherever you're going to be. And, and now make forecasts for anywhere on land on earth. So we have the ski area forecast, but any backcountry spots, uh, your secret powder stash, your house, uh, whatever it might be, we now have forecast data. Um, for all of those. So we've grown, grown from, you know, one or three people effectively with a blog, <laughs> um, to, uh, now a full fledged app and, and, and website that has our local daily snows, uh, but also just all of the forecast data that you would come to expect, um, from, from any weather app. So it's been, it's been an insane journey. I don't want to say insane. It's been a <laughs> molasses speed <laughs> journey, <laughs> uh, to, to use my uncle's terminology, but, you know, I did it at my speed and, and that was, you know, maybe we could have grown faster and done more, but also, 
um, you know, we're not trying to take over the world. We're not trying to, to be the next unicorn, which is, you know, a billion dollar company or shorthand for billion dollar company. We want to provide uh, a phenomenal product that, that we are excited about, that all the people that work with me are excited about. And there's seven of us full time and about 10 plus contractors at Forecast uh, that people are excited about, that pays our bills, that gives us enough, enough profit to reinvest in the company, keep getting faster computers and, you know, better, cooler mapping technology and all this. Uh, and that provides a nice lifestyle um, for us and our families. But, uh, and if we can do that and do right by the ski community and, uh, and, and educate a little bit about weather and bring people more information about weather, you know, versus kind of just throwing up their hands and like, oh man, weather's just weather. I don't know anything, you know, it could be anything. And, and hopefully we're demystifying it a little bit, or at least giving people hopefully a little bit of an edge when they go out um, and try to find their next adventure. Um, then it's, uh, it's the best life that I think me and, and most of us that work together could live. So we're, we're on the journey and, and there's no, there's no end in sight. We don't have a, um, not, not that that you asked this, but I just like to offer kind of more of these personal insights, uh, entrepreneurship insights on these, on, on these kind of talks. Uh, we have no end game. Um, we're not trying to sell the company in X years. Uh, I'm not trying to retire. Um, if I retired, I'd still look at weather data every morning <laughs> right. to figure out where I was going to, you know, like it just, um, there, there is no end game. And so that's not to say that certain entrepreneurs shouldn't have an end game. You know, somebody comes along and offers you a boatload of money because you worked really hard and you found a great market niche and people are paying you like, Hey, more power to you. That's amazing. And, and congratulations. Um, but for us, we're hopeful that we can keep um, this wonderful business going, keep providing amazing products, not rest in our laurels, but also just keep, um, keep doing this because a lot of us, this is just our pure passion um, that we want to do and, and, and don't necessarily have a second act. Yeah. By the way, you know, I've talked with many, many founders over the last eight years or so. And a question that I sort of raise uh, pretty frequently is when you say there's no end game, there's no sort of exit strategy here. I feel like that is, is something that came around maybe pretty hard, like in the last 10 years or so, where if you're the founder of a company, yeah, maybe people are asking about, you know, what you're doing or what you're thinking about for the next move. But it became more and more common for people to be like, you know, what is the exit strategy? And I've said this before, but it sounds like maybe you're on the same page. I'm like, well, if a founder really started something because they're passionate about it and they believe in it, why would the goal be to just then get rid of it and dump it for a bunch of money, right? Like, and that's what I kind of just heard you say. And I, I was like, when did the American dream sort of seem to go from like starting something that you believe in and is great and maybe can support you and, you know, a, a team of people that you care about and instead, that sort of American dream is like, start something and then sell it in four or five years. <laughs> it just seems weird to me that that be kind of became like the the default. Well, I, th I think some of this just came up from the rise of, of tech. Uh, and, and you saw people start companies and within a year or two, they were worth millions or billions <laughs> of dollars. And people said, oh, my gosh, like, you know, this is this is incredible. And I might really like that thing, but gosh, this is a check for a billion dollars, right? Like that's, 
that that's generational money. But but also, you know, I think so tech has has I, I don't think there's anything wrong with hey, if you start something and it's worth that much money and, and and that's your end game, then you know, hey, that's that's the decision you made for yourself. But there have been people that have been in business, you know, since the beginning of time. It's just more taken, it, it's taken a less uh understandable approach. Like it doesn't, uh, it doesn't get into the media as much, right? It might be the person who owns the neighborhood restaurant for 30 years or the local plumbing company or the electrical company or the builder. And it's, it's a good life. It's a way of life. It pays the bills. They do a good service and maybe there, there isn't a big exit. They save money. And then when they're done, they're done. And maybe they pass it on to their family or, or an employee. And that's kind of it. I think it's, you know, the rise of tech has given people more of an uh, a publicized way to understand, oh, there's an exit here that could make me a lot, a lot of money. And, and there's more off ramps for tech companies with private equity, um, or, you know, if you're big enough for going public or acquisitions. Now, I do want to be really clear. When I say there's no, um, you know, end game or exit in mind, I am now starting to allow myself to think about what a succession plan is. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean yeah. I'm, I'm leaving anytime soon, but it would be irresponsible. I mean, early on when I'm starting this, you're like, I mean, I, I just hope we have a business. Like, I can't even think about a succession plan. Like, I'm just trying to pay the bills, right? But eventually, now that there's a full team and a product and a, and a great group of loyal um, paying subscribers and a, and a great group of loyal advertisers, and this is a real product that people rely on, it would be irresponsible of me as a leader and as all the leaders of our company to not think about what happens to this company if I get hit by a bus tomorrow Definitely. or, you know, I just can't work or something like that. So we are starting to think about what that planning looks like. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm going anywhere tomorrow. Or I'm going to be here for the next 50 years. Uh, you know, maybe it's somewhere in between. Um, but that's a good, you know, goal to have Absolutely. is to have those plans if something goes wrong. But I will share a story and that a couple of years ago, I called the founder of AccuWeather, who is Joel Myers. And like me, he grew up out in Philadelphia. I grew up outside of Philadelphia uh, and was obsessed with snow at an early age. He went to Penn State for meteorology. His first clients were ski areas when he got AccuWeather off the ground. I mean, it's just funny, like the parallels. I got a scholarship from him uh, when I went to Penn State. And so I, I, I tracked him down and I called him a couple of years ago and I... I don't want to speak out of turn, but I, I think he's probably in his 80s now, and this is 2022, um, or late 70s or, or maybe 80s. And I asked him, I said, you know, you've been basically running AccuWeather for the better part of 60 years. Like, have you ever gotten tired? <laughs> like, you ever want to do something else? <laughs> you know, like you ever just out of ideas or it's just, you know, I mean, it's great. The business has grown, but like, I'm sure you're, you're plenty wealthy, right? Like I doubt you need, you know, more money. Like what, why are you still... And I think he's chairman. He might not be running it day to day now, but why are you still involved? And he said, he said, Joel, he is also Joel. He said, I come to work. I am super excited every day. We're getting patents. We're thinking of things. We have an awesome team. Like, sure, there are frustrating days, but he said, we've grown revenue, you know, almost every year that we've been in business. I said, well, you didn't want to sell. He's like, from a number of years, we never had that option. Right. Like this wasn't selling your business, you know, to, to bigger financial, you know, organizations wasn't a thing, I guess, really in a, in a large way until the last, you know, maybe two decades or something. And I'm sure the finance people listening to this will, will take issue with that. But, you know, this is just coming from him saying like, there weren't people knocking on my door, you know, trying to buy this business in the eighties or nineties or something like that. So it's just, it's fun to hear from people 
like that who have just a passion and have grown a wonderful business that will flourish without them, but still want to be involved. And also, I guess, importantly, know when to step aside, at least from day to day, um, to allow that business to flourish. You know, I also commend AccuWeather and Joel Myers, because over 60 years, technology in the world has changed so much, yet they are still highly relevant and doing very interesting things. So, um, you know, that's just challenging, right? I think about myself in 10 or 20 years, am I going to lose, you know, the pulse of <laughs> of society and the ski community or, or can we we keep that going and how do we ensure that we have young people in the company um, that stay up on new technology and and, and ski culture and, and outdoor culture too. But this is, um, yeah, I I feel like you and I could probably talk for a long time about uh, the ethos of entrepreneurship. Yeah. But this is also, I, I want to be clear, I didn't start the company and have, you know, a lengthy checklist of all of these deeply held beliefs. You know, I had a very short checklist of things that made me happy and didn't make me happy that I had developed while I was in college, grad school, and my first job. And I just, I just very short, it might be five or six things. But when I was working on something that was very, very, very exciting to me, and I could just work on it for hours, and I didn't care what the time was, I wrote that thing down. Like, why do I love this so much? And I want to, I should do more of this. And when I was working on something that I just could not stand, and I, you know, I wanted to leave, and I couldn't stay focused on it, I wrote that down. Too. And I got a checklist of, you know, five, six, maybe seven items of like, well, if I ever start a company, if I ever have another career, um, it would be nice to incorporate a lot of these items. Um, and so I had that and that gave me some confidence to say, oh, well, I want to start a weather company. Should I quit my job? Well, the thing that you really care about, Joel, is weather. <laughs> you know, you also care about an autonomous remote work environment so you can go skiing, you know, and, and a handful of, of, of other things. Uh, and so that gave me the confidence to, to go and try to start the business. But a lot of these things of exit strategy and, and, you know, working with employees, this just comes, I don't know, for me, at least it kind of came naturally, um, as we went through this, it wasn't like I had this whole, you know, 30 year plan when I first started the company. So speaking of skiing again, how many days do you think you're getting these days, these seasons? Well, I know exactly. Oh, are you a counter? <laughs> are, I'm not a day counter. I don't, I don't, I don't count them. So you do, huh? <laughs> Well, you're probably out, you know, testing gear so much that it all, it all blurs together. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I count them and you know what, it's, it's less from a, a, um, like a braggy standpoint. Yeah. I really, I, I don't, I, I really don't care right. to brag. It doesn't matter. Um, if I got two amazing powder days to me, that's, I mean, I really like skiing, so I'd like to have more than that, but you know, if that's, if that's what it came down to, that's fine. Um, it's just fun one, I, I started counting just a few years before I started my job just to see like, oh, if I or, or started the company to see if like, hey, if I start the company, will I ski more? Will I ski less? Like what happens? Um, two, it's really fun because I take notes on some of the best powder days that yeah, I mean, we all have those days that we remember from last year, five years, 10 years ago. And it's fun to revisit those because sometimes the fish stories can grow a little bit like I swore that snow was chest deep. And you're like, OK, I wrote down it was 13 inches like it was really good. But, you know, it was 13 inches or whatever it might be. Um, so I love writing down some notes. And then more recently, my son is five. So it's been very fun to just document his days, write some notes like when, <laughs> when did he ski, you know, without me holding him? When did he start making a parallel turn? Uh, you know, or when did I first see a hockey stop or something? So it's fun to, um, to keep those days. I'm usually in the 60s. 
number of days, very few of those days are full days. Uh, I'm usually out uh, an early skin or a late skin, um, just to get some exercise and make some turns. Uh, powder days, obviously I'll ski for a couple hours or, you know, if I'm skiing with my son and my family, uh, however long the, uh, the M&Ms can, can keep the, the energy level high, <laughs> for my son. Uh, but yeah, I'm in, I'm in the sixties and I know, you know, some people get a lot more and some people get a lot less. And I just, um, you know, to me, it, while it's fun to talk about the number of days and how often it's, it's just really the quality and the happiness. And, you know, my dad comes out from, uh, where he lives in retirement in Florida and skis, you know, twice a year for about a week each time in, in Colorado. But those, those nine days that he skis are, he just loves it and he looks forward to it all year. And, and that's just as impactful as my, you know, 62 or whatever those days are. All right. I want to let you get going soon, but I feel like I should still have you make the case here for somebody listening to this, maybe open snow is new to them or they've heard of it, but haven't actually become a subscriber. Talk a little bit to the snow dorks now, right? <laughs> Our fellow snow dorks. Yep. If they're like, well, yeah, okay, this all sounds really cool. But again, my phone comes with a built-in weather app. So just talk to people who are in our snow sports communities about this is why you might want to consider open snow. Yep. So th probably the simplest I would, thing I would say is we've all had the experience of having a hundred tabs open. Yep. <laughs> and I'm not talking about shopping for furniture <laughs> or travel deals, uh, but comparing snow reports and forecasts and all of that. And we're trying to shrink those hundred tabs down into maybe a handful of tabs. Uh, we don't have flights for you <laughs> and some of the other lodging or other things that might go along with, with skiing. But rather than looking at all the different snow reports and, and a cams page over there and a forecast over here and the AVI forecast over there, uh, we've all brought it down into one app. So the easiest thing you can do is you can jump onto open snow, favorite your list of mountains, uh, might say, Hey, I have this, you know, I have an Epic pass or I have an icon pass or whatever pass. We have a lot of passes in there, or I just like these four mountains, uh, throw them on a favorite screen. And then on that one screen, you can quickly switch between views of just a very average, a general snow forecast, what's coming in the next five or 10 days. Or if you see a storm you really like, uh, what's the difference between the night forecast and the day forecast? Should I go to this place or that place? And how should I get there before the storm? Very easy within 10 seconds, 20 seconds to open up your phone in the morning, scroll through the snow forecast, understand what's happening. Uh, we also have just like every other app, but hopefully in an even more convenient form, all the snow reports. So, you know, a forecast is great, <laughs> but what's actually fallen. So you'll get all the snow reports. You can get them pushed notified to you, uh, when they, when they come out from from resorts. Uh, I'll also, we also have all the snow state camps. So those exist a lot of places, but mostly in Colorado. So if you're a Colorado listener, most of the resorts have snow state cams. Um, you can favorite just those cams. So on my favorite screen, I can go to cams and I've just favorited all the handful of snow state cams. And literally in a 15 second scroll, I've seen where it has snowed um, all throughout Colorado. So it's just convenient. It's simpler, uh, trying to save you from those hundred tabs. A uh, couple other things we just released this year. Uh, we have beautiful maps. So you can look at um, forecasts across maps. Um, and you can also go to this thing called Forecast Anywhere, which we're really excited about. And I kind of alluded to it earlier. You can tap on a map anywhere and get a forecast for that exact spot. And so the thing that I get frustrated, I mean, I, I'm a user, right? right of open right. Snow. It's like that old, uh, that old, uh, you know, like men's 
you know, or like hair commercial or the guys like, I'm not only, you know, the company leader, I'm also, <laughs> you know, a client yeah. or something. It's like, dude, I'm using this app all the time to, to still plan out where my family and my friends and I are going to go um, ski good snow. So um, one of the things that we're, we're working on is, or that we have in the app is called uh, forecast anywhere. So uh, I have some backcountry spots that I really like to go to. And so I can just put, I can just tap on a map or I can search, but a lot of these places don't necessarily have proper names. <laughs> so I can just tap on a map and create a point and get a forecast uh, for that point, add that to my favorites. So now intermixed between your favorite ski areas, I also have uh, my favorite backcountry spots and or my house. <laughs> you know, how much snow is coming in my house or just my my favorite backcountry spot. And one of the reasons that we built this in is we noticed in a lot of other weather apps, you know, I might, I just, I distinctly remember this moment where I typed in, I was just testing out forecasts for other weather apps and comparing ours to theirs. And I typed in Wolf Creek and it gave me a forecast that just looked a little off. Like, I mean, there was like two feet of snow coming to Wolf Creek, you know, plus or minus, but like there was a lot of snow. Uh, and the, and the, this forecast was for temperatures that were like 33 degrees with, you know, three inches of snow. I was like, this just feels weird. And I, I never got confirmation, but it also gave a current condition for Pergosa Springs, which is a town, a handful of what, miles and many thousands of feet lower than, than Wolf Creek. And I was just kind of left wondering, like, is this the forecast for Pergosa, even though I typed in, you know, Wolf Creek Pass and it just defaulted. And so we wanted to ensure that nobody would ever have that experience uh, with open snow. So we clearly now show on the website and on the app, uh, the lat lawn and elevation that, and you can tap on it and you can see the exactly where that forecast point is. And that works around the world, not on oceans, but anywhere on land or, or near land over lakes and things like that. So, um, I love that. And I'll leave you with one more thing that I really love that I don't think a lot of people, um, take advantage of, which is we now, um, estimate how much snow has fallen uh, for any of these points. And we use it based on all the weather data that we collect. So no, we at this point don't have on the ground sensors, but um, we at least use all of the weather modeling technology um, to have an estimate of snowfall. So if you have a favorite backcountry spot and it happens to be in between snow tell sites or not close to a ski area, and you're kind of left scratching your head like, hey, how much snow actually fell there? Uh, or nearby snow tell sites haven't reported or ski areas sometimes just don't report too. Um, we at least will have uh, an estimate of snowfall. So that's how helpful um, so that you can look back and say, oh, you know, it snowed every day for the last four days, at least a couple of inches, man, conditions should be really soft versus, you know, maybe it's been blue sky. I haven't been keeping a uh, close attention to that one point, but I can go back and look and, and see that it hasn't snowed for two weeks or something like that. So, um, there's more, there's more. <laughs> to open yeah. snow, but, but we're just trying to make all these things that people email us and say, oh, I'm trying to do this. Wouldn't it be cool if you could do that? Like we're doing those things and we're trying to do those things. And there are a handful of snow report apps that are out there and they're free. And I totally get that. And if you're, you know, looking for a quick snow report and you ski a handful of times a year, like I get it. You might not want to pay $29 a year, not a month, but a year for our app. And that's totally fine. But we have, um, a two week free trial, which is a great time to try it now, you know, early part of the season. We also have something that I don't think a lot of people realize uh, until they go to sign up, which is we have a group plan. So for $39 a year, you can just invite three friends to your account. You can all have your own favorite screens, but it, it basically works out to 10 bucks a person a year if you invite three of your friends. So, um, 
It's pretty, it might be one of the least costly things um, in skiing. And I know it's not geared to everybody, but if you're still listening to this podcast an hour in about all of this snow, uh, you, you yourself might be a weather uh, or snow nerd and, and you can get all of that in open snow. And of course, there's the daily snows, which is me and a handful of other 10 other people writing, you know, about where it's going to snow. So if you say, oh, that's fine, I can look at all this data, but gosh, can somebody just tell me, you know, what's going to happen in the storm or if you're confident or not confident. That's what we're doing. And so you can, you can read those two for a couple of, uh, for a couple of minutes each morning. And hopefully that can help you, uh, get more confidence or less confidence if you're thinking about, you know, planning a powder chase, uh, somewhere before you pull the trigger. Well, I've been a paying subscriber since before I knew you, Joel, kind of everybody I know is. <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's, been fun to kind of get the word out more about what you're up to. And it's it's remarkable. I mean, from from just the entrepreneurship part of what you all have built at Open Snow, it's incredibly impressive. And then aside from all that, just if you happen to really like sliding around in snow, it just kind of is the default app for many of the people I know who are kind of skiing the 80, 90, 100 days a year type of stuff. So, um, but yeah, been really cool to get to know you and and your team, um, you know, over the last year. And, you know, honestly, the one big thing that you and I still need to do is actually ski together now. Yes. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm actually hoping that if it doesn't happen sooner, that it at least happens at our blister summit in February. So, you know, no pressure, Joel, but I think you need to get to the blister summit. <laughs> I I couldn't agree with you more. And you gave me a little opening. I do want to acknowledge uh, and celebrate the efforts of our team. I think most of the people that use open snow know me because I'm the writer for a lot of Colorado or they hear of Brian in Tahoe or Evan in Utah or whomever the local writer is. Uh, but there's a lot of us working behind the scenes to make this whole thing happen from the te technology side and the operational side, just like any, you know, company and group of people, there's people that you hear about and people you don't hear about, but everybody's very important. So I just wanted to acknowledge that it's not just the, the Joel show, even though a lot of people think <laughs> it's just the Joel show. No, you've got some great people over there. Should, should we talk for a second about the blister summit? Let's talk about the blister summit. Sure. We're excited about it. That's for sure. I don't know. What do you want to say about it? I want oh, you. You've. I'm the, I want you to pr pretend I've never heard about it. <laughs> like, tell me, tell me, tell me how to get me there. <laughs> get me there. <laughs> Blister Summit, February 12th through the 16th. The lineup of brands that we're going to have at the summit is really coming together incredibly well. We're super excited about it. People who have gone to the summit year one and year two. Um, they can attest. Uh, it's just kind of become, I don't know, a new thing in the snow sports world and truly the global snow sports world where a lot of, well, a lot of companies whose product uh, people might want to get on, whether that's backcountry equipment or inbounds, there's that. But then um, we do these panel sessions in the evenings. And, you know, that's one I didn't, I don't want to say too much, but I am hoping to have you on one of those panel sessions. It's just been, I think, an opportunity for conversations to take place that just have not taken place previously 
in the snow sports world. And so for someone just coming to attend, you get to ski a bunch of incredibly cool new gear, go skiing with people like you, Joel, or a Chris Davenport, you know, or an Eric Hurlifson, and get to meet some of the blister reviewers who you either agree a lot with or maybe hate their take on equipment. I don't know. But it's just become a really incredible gathering uh, from a lot of people across the whole snow sports world. So that's a bit of what we're up to. And there's a lot more information about the summit on our website. I guess that's my off-the-cuff take on what the Blister Summit is. I love it. I'll try to make it snow. I have no control. <laughs> yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> make it snow, Joel. Yeah. That would be terrific. Last year, we caught it just phenomenally well, and we're skiing incredibly deep pow at the summit. And so if you can make that happen again, um, <laughs> you will be the most popular person at the, at the summit for sure. When people, people sometimes see me, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's kind of like... You're a local celebrity. I was like, well, I'm a C-list celebrity when it snows for people who like to ski. So it's a very, <laughs> it's a very niche audience. But yeah, we'll see what we can do for the summit. That'd be great. Well, hey, man, I'm going to let you get going. Great to talk. Look forward to doing it again soon. And uh, yeah, keep up the great work. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And do not forget to go to opensnow.com slash blister to get your exclusive 60-day free trial so you can check out all of the features that you just heard Joel talking about in this conversation. And then second thing, get yourself registered for the Blister Summit and then come hang out and come ski with me and Joel and a bunch of other people. Finally, I want to say thanks to Joel for the great conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. All right, everybody, we will be talking to you later this week on all of our other podcasts. And if you are a Blister member, we are running another live stream Blister Happy Hour for Blister members. And that will be this Wednesday and we'll be dropping the specific start time soon. So if you're a Blister member, come hang out with us at Happy Hour. All right, everybody, take good care. Talk to you soon.